lips if you go. Thanks, Pete. Let's just uh, pray as we open up God's word together. Lord, it is so good to stop and consider what Christ has done for us. And this morning we are thankful. Lord, as we seek to reclaim Christ now in your word, uh, help us. If there's anything that is clear in this passage, it is clear that we need the Spirit and that you are the one who provides it. So help us this morning to understand your word and to live your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I'm not sure how you evaluate maturity. We all evaluate maturity very differently depending on our age and the generation that we're we're born into in some form. and especially in relation to how mature we think we are, usually. That's the, that's the ultimate standard, isn't it? Is, is how mature is the other person in comparison to me? Our standard of maturity is very, very subjective. Uh, think of the example of, of fruit. Uh, immature fruit, I suppose, if you want to call it that, at the, at the very earliest stages is, a, is just a blossom. Even before it's a blossom, it's a bud. And go further and further and back and trace the trace where it comes from before that if you want to. But at the very earliest stages of bud, there becomes a blossom that forms into something that's hopefully edible. Hopefully. It, it all has little little moments where you see something is happening. It's growing. It even changes its feel. It's when it's just just getting right, it's it's the right mixture of, of soft and firm. There's just that, that right little mix based on whatever type of fruit that it is. And, and ripe f- fruit, the fruit that's ready for harvest, is like a tr- it's just a true joy. I've certainly had that experience. Of in-laws have the peach tree that comes this time of year and it's just abundant and it's wonderful. I was out under it last Sunday getting hit by peaches. That's how ripe the fruit was on their tree. And some of that was soft, but it was very firm. But when you take fruit that's not ripe, that's not quite ripe, it's very unpleasant, isn't it? There's a, it can be very discouraging to know that you put a lot of effort into caring for a fruit tree, watering it, and even protecting it from birds and all those sorts of things. And then you bite into fruit and it's just, it's just, it's not nice. It's just something foul and, and it's bitter 
It's just, just not a nice experience. Fruit is, is one thing we can picture in our minds. It has a sort of a, a platform. We, we, we know where it starts and where it ends. It's got a blossom and then we pick it and we enjoy it. On the scale of fruit, and I won't be too pointed this morning, on the scale of fruitiness, where are you? Where are you on the scale of fruit in the sense of maturity? Because we're all either blossoming, blossoming and ripening. We're all, we're all in the process of maturity. We all should be in the process of maturity. We're all in different stages of that. And that's what's a healthy thing as a church and as even as individuals. We're all at different stages, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. It's part of the great blessing of being in the body. We're all at different <coughs> stages of maturity. Paul has some thoughts on maturity, especially on spiritual maturity in our passage this morning. It's very helpful for us to consider as, as a church. What is maturity? And it's also helpful even for those of us who might not be part of the church, that we, we long for a connection to a source of life that will bring fruit in our lives, don't we? Something where we have productivity, something where we would have a purpose, and that is what God can provide through his spirit. So we think of true spiritual maturity as a, as a theme this morning. We know it's not found in any other place than the wisdom of God and in the power of God. That is where true maturity and spiritual maturity would be found. So those who long to be spiritually mature, as we look at this passage this morning, we see that they would proclaim Christ, that they put, put him first, their first things first and everything else in its proper place. Those who want to be spiritually mature also uh, share in God's unfashionable wisdom. I'll explain that term in a minute. We, we accept how God timelessly works in his ways through his spirit. And those who are becoming spiritually mature show they have the mind of Christ. That's what we look at this morning in our passage. A bit of context about where we've been in chapter, chapter 1. Paul's outlined his primary concern for the church at Corinth is the priority of Christ. They should trust in nothing else. They should trust in no one else. No one else has died for them. No one else could atone for their sins. They shouldn't identify with anybody else but Christ. Uh, but they should trust in God's wisdom. And God's wisdom is that salvation is found in a crucified Jesus. There's no other way of salvation. The wisdom of the world would dismiss this, whether they're Jew or Gentile or Greek or whatever it is. And even our own inclinations to identify with, with our tribe would sometimes diminish this truth, this wisdom of God. But God has chosen the weak things, the insignificant things, to bring about his salvation in, in us. We receive through Christ our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption. The end of chapter 1 tells us we have nothing to boast in and when we do boast, we divide ourselves from others. This is where Paul has been going. And now he's, he's asked at the end of chapter 1 for the believers to consider their calling. Consider your calling. Where are you at? Where did you come from? You came, maybe you came from something, maybe you came from nothing, but you've all come to God through what would be counted the weak. God used the weak things to shame the strong. He now moves on. So consider me. Consider my calling. 
Consider what I was like when I was with you. Consider how we might show our faith and maturity. How, how was I among you? And the first, this is the first example he gives is of himself, of proclaiming Christ. He put first things first, Paul did. Now, it's no real secret uh, to those of you who know me that, that Timothy Keller has had an impact and influence on my life, sometimes in the, just the pure plagiarism sense. You might have picked up on that, those who have listened to me at various points. Those of you who are laughing, obviously, have listened too much to me. But several, several years ago, I had the privilege of hearing him in person. And I was very excited for this. I was very excited for this. I went to a conference in Sydney, which was good. But my main eagerness and keenness was he was going to be speaking at a large event at Luna Park in Sydney with thousands present on the Saturday evening. It was going to be a big outreach sort of evening. I was very excited to hear him. My expectations built up. Rachel was there. We had a family friend with us. They had a non-Christian relative with them. This non-Christian person, they were going to hear the gospel as far as I was concerned. This was going to be it. It was going to be the best thing he'd ever heard. Except it wasn't. It really wasn't. Um, it was a bit confusing. It was a bit disconnected. Uh, he didn't, didn't feel like he was in touch with the, the audience he was speaking to. It just, just felt really... It was disappointing, but it also just felt like that, that, was, that was a miss. God, I'm still sure, still used it. But all of us left with the same feeling. And certainly a non-Christian person that we were there with, he walked away going, oh, well, I don't know entirely what that was about. And I understood what he meant. It was a bit too much lofty speech, I suppose you could say. On another occasion, just a few years ago, I went to hear Franklin Graham at an event. And I did not have high expectations of that event. I did not have high expectations in what I would hear in the sense of the message. Uh, but sitting there, uh, hearing the simple presentation of the gospel was challenging to me. It ex- made me examine my pride. So why, why would I expect him not to present the gospel simply? Why would I not? What else do people need? And the response that came afterwards challenged me even further. So, well, God uses the weak to shame the strong. You compare those two speakers, and they wouldn't necessarily want that comparison. They both preach the gospel. One's polished. A quote from Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and Tolkien and all those sorts of things and Lewis. The other one barely looked up as he just read from a script in a, in a folder hardly looked up as he read out just a couple of little stories and then the gospel message. Barely looked up at the, con- the audience. But yet the response from both was very different. The response in my heart was different too as I examined my own motives and what I was listening to and why I was listening to it. I share these examples mainly just because just that's my lesson in, in judging a speaker rather than judging the message. It's very dangerous thing to approach uh, a sermon thinking of the preacher and just of the preacher. Very dangerous. You'll get distracted by his weird sense of dress. All sorts of other things. His rhetorical skill set, his personality, his wisdom, his eloquence. The moment you start to do that, you start to 
Either elevate the preacher so highly that he actually has an authority he shouldn't have in your life, or you denigrate them so lowly, so poorly, you actually don't hear what God's saying. It's dangerous. Paul here says, when he came to him, when he came proclaiming, he had one test, one standard by which we should measure what we hear. Is Christ proclaimed? I didn't not come to you proclaiming the test of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. There's one thing just to think of that in the context of preaching and a sermon or hearing the gospel presented. Is he actually presented as Christ preached? That's a good, very good standard. What about we extend it beyond that in your life? Do we have the same focus in our lives that we demand from others as well? We often don't. As we live our lives, are we proclaiming Christ? And by that, I mean... Is he seen to be our main priority in the way we live, the way we talk, the way we act, even the way we think? Does, is he seen to be the main priority in our lives? Now, preaching is very subjective, one of the most subjective things in the world. Two people can listen to the same sermon and get something very different out of it. And preachers don't get it right all the time. They make mistakes. They commit faux pas. They can lack a bit of insightfulness or connection. They can do that. They can, even put, they can even put some people to sleep. Paul did that too. There's certainly a way of getting it wrong. There's certainly a way of getting it wrong. Paul says there's something he didn't do. He didn't come with high speech. He didn't come with men's wisdom. He didn't come with an inaccessible speech. He didn't come with speech that was so high and lofty and eloquent that you'd need a degree just to sit there and think about some of the words or a dictionary as you're listening. He didn't do that. He just preached Christ. And saying that, we also shouldn't slip to the other end where we Paul here is just excusing lazy preaching or sloppy presentations of the gospel. That's not what he's saying either. One commentator put it this way, if you look at Corinthians and study it, you see there's a lot of structure. There's a lot of structure. There's a lot of... One of Darren's favourite words from college, a lot of chiasms going on. There's the building in and the building out and there's lots of things going on where Paul is very intentional. One commentator put it this way, with polished speech, he's telling us not to use polished speech. There's almost a poetry in some of the deep structure that is going on here. Peter struggled to understand Paul at times. So we know there was a level of eloquence and rhetoric that Paul had in his writing and in his speech that was incredibly structured incredibly well thought out and composed. But his point here, Paul, is saying is what is the priority as you speak, as you live, as you proclaim that you are in Christ? Is he seen to be your one thing, your one main thing? He's not preaching according to worldly standards, according to the the philosophers of his age or earlier that the Greeks built their whole culture on. And he knows it's not his words that will persuade people of the gospel. He, he can't do it. You can't manipulate someone by speech into the kingdom. You can't do that. It's God's 
spirit at work. My, verse 4 tells us, my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He also says, it wasn't just what he said, it was how he said it. In verse 3, he says, I was with you in weakness and fear and, and much trembling. He, very possibly, he was a man who was physically weak, very possibly. He'd endured so much. By the time he got to Corinth, if you go back and read in Acts, when he's at Corinth in Acts chapter 18, the chapters before that, you see in the time before, the years and months before, he's had stonings. He's had whippings and beatings. He's been in prison. And then he's before these people in Corinth and there's threats of violence there. They're trying to drag him before the local assembly. He's saying there's, no, there's nothing convinced you about his physical appearance. He's also saying he's not preaching with a psychological condition. When he says he's fearful and trembling, it's a genuine thing. He's fearful and trembling. He's anxious. He's trembling, but he's not doing it as a method. He's not doing it as an act. He's being who he is. I've um, had many well-intentioned people tell me I need to change certain things about my preaching. That's, that's okay. I'm very welcome to constructive feedback. But some of the ones I've struggled with more are those who've said I should manifest tears when I'm preaching on certain topics. Um, I don't think that would be helpful for you if it wasn't genuine. I've also been instructed I should use the pitch of my voice to elicit a response, to move you and manipulate your heart and your emotion. I should, I should play on my voice to make you laugh or cry. I don't think that would be helpful either. And that's not to say I don't have things to learn about how I present, but there's Paul's fear and trembling is not a method. It's not one we should copy in the sense of copy and act like that. No, this is the appropriate, the appropriate way for spiritually mature people to serve others and proclaim Christ. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling, he tells the Philippian church. So his focus was Christ. He never drew attention to himself. And his purpose of that was so anyone who heard his message would rest in trust. Their rest and trust would be in the right place. It wouldn't be in the wisdom of man or how clever Paul was. It would be in the power of God. Their faith would rest in the power of God. So those of us who desire to be spiritually mature will put, put Christ first. We'll put Christ first and we'll proclaim him faithfully. We put Christ first by, by showing what we prioritise. I once had someone I heard who was desiring to be a missionary and they declared the priority for them when they reached the mission field in, a, in, a, in another country. Their priority was to teach the people English so they could teach them how to read the Bible. 
in a certain translation of English. Ensure that as you proclaim Christ, that Christ himself is the only stumbling block. He will be a stumbling block. There are people that hear of Christ, they will reject him. They can't get past him, they stumble over him. To him, as has already been said, it's weakness. It's foolishness. They will stumble at Jesus. We need to do all within our control. As we're proclaiming him, we proclaim him. Not our secondary issues. Not our private agendas of what we think a Christian looks like and therefore we teach them that first. No, we proclaim him, who he is, what he's done. He is first. And sometimes we're not even in the race. We're not even running second. He is first. How do we think through this? Run some diagnostics on yourself. What are you resting in? If your faith is meant to rest in the power of God, can stop and think about, am I resting? Am I exhausted? Am I tired? That might be an indication that you're resting in something that's not the power of God. It might just be an indication you need to rest as well and have a nap. But what are you resting in? What do you fully trust in? What do you fully rely on for who you are? What are you passionate about? Where do you recognise that you're listening to other voices more than you're listening to the priority, what you should be your priority, to the voice of Christ? What we prioritise will be seen in how we act as well. It'll be seen in our behaviour. It'll be seen in our fruit. Paul says, I proclaim Christ and I did that, the weakness of here, because I had nothing else to give but him. People will see what you prioritise by how you act. How do you carry yourself? Especially when you encounter people and circumstances that are different to yours. How, how does your priority in life flow over to them? How do they perceive what you trust in? <coughs> I think it's a good application here to think about as, as it was for me, a good exercise to think about what an unhealthy focus or expectation of listening to a message might be as well. An unhealthy focus or expectation on what the messenger uh, is saying or even how they're saying it. That, that'll distract you from what is actually being said. Just be conscious of that. You will be distracted It'll cause you to value the wrong things as well. If you're more concerned with the delivery or the messenger than you are with the message, you'll be distracted or it'll cause you to value the wrong things. Ultimately, if you go too far down that path, it'll cause you to trust in the power of men more than the power of God. You'll align yourself with a person or a church or a, a group of people that think like you, and that'll be your identity and your power. And that is dangerous too. So don't wrestle with the messenger, the messenger or the method and neglect to actually wrestle with the message 
What is God's word saying to you? As a church, we proclaim Christ. We're not, we don't, can't apologise for that. That is why we exist, is to proclaim Christ and make disciples. He is our priority. We give him the ultimate authority and platform. Because if we were to build this church on anything else, we'd be in trouble. Someone has said what you win them with, you win them too. If we were to throw an event every week where you come and there's, there's a massive spread of whatever, you, I don't know, the different taste in the room, pizza every week, free pizza for everybody. Every Sunday we give out free pizza. Would people be coming for the pizza or for Jesus? <laughs> it's very loose. Loose. We can think of other illustrations that might draw you in better than pizza. What you win them with, you win them too. And we proclaim Christ. That's a stumbling block for some. But for us, it's a conviction and it's something we believe we need. Let's move on to the next few verses. Spiritually mature people share and impart God's timeless or unfashionable wisdom. We accept how God works. And no one would ever mistakenly confuse me as being trendy or fashionable. I'm pretty sure of that. My dress sense is probably a step towards grandpa rather than relevant hipster. And Paul here speaks of the the rulers and wisdom of this age, verse 6. So, among the mature we impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. Culture is passing away. Fashion is passing away. What you get in today will be out of date tomorrow, and that's literal for some of us with our clothing. What you get into today will be gone and out of date, or you won't be able to get into tomorrow. One of the main reasons the church, I think, should stay out of commenting on every single trend or fashionable hot topic of the moment is exactly that. It's just in the moment. It's just in the moment. If we get too distracted doing that, when we get too distracted, caught up in what's the wisdom, what's happening now? What are people talking about now? We need to talk about that. There's part of that that we do in our lives. We do that in our homes, with our families, our friends, our workplaces. That is a good thing to do. How do we live our lives in the moment? That is wise. But we have to be careful in getting so caught up in what the trend is that we get swayed by these things. That we get swayed to thinking, well, we need to restructure the way we do things in order to fit the trend or the fashion of the time, the wisdom of the time. But Paul here makes a distinction. The wisdom of God is shared and imparted with those who are spiritually mature. In verse 6 and 7, there's an impartation of this, this wisdom of God. And, out, and it's contrasted distinctly from the worldly rulers and wisdom who have showed themselves ignorant. They didn't understand what God was doing. Verse 8 points that out. None of the rulers of this age, the ones you think are authoritative, the ones you think you need to listen to, remember they didn't understand what God was doing in Jesus. 
They didn't understand. If they had, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. So they didn't get it. So don't trust in their wisdom. They didn't get it. Compared to the hidden and secret wisdom of God, as Paul describes it, revealed to those by God's Spirit who knows God's thoughts, knows how God works, knows how God thinks, this Spirit of God reveals to those who love God that he's been at work. There's nothing hidden to those to whom the Spirit has revealed that God loves them. Nothing is, there's things that no eye has seen or no ear has heard, nor has entered into the heart of man or imagined what God has prepared. We can't begin to think about what God has planned. And when we do, we get it wrong. But instead, he says, God is, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For only the Spirit of God knows how God operates. You can't know how God operates. The rulers of this age don't know how God operates. When they think they do, they get it wrong. And they kill his son. Why would you trust them? And why would you trust yourselves? You can't even begin to imagine the way God operates. You need God to show you his wisdom. It's not something you can manufacture. God's timeless, unfashionable wisdom has outlasted every ruler, every age, every generation. He just keeps pouring out his wisdom through his spirit. And our response is, to this God has prepared all this for us and planned all this for us. We love him. We must love him. We can't boast in anything. We can just sit there and go, love him. God's imparted the wisdom, those to whom God has imparted wisdom, they possess this spirit. They understand what's hidden to others. And while others are trying to build monuments to themselves and things that will outlast them, different systems of government, different buildings, different philosophies, true wisdom that leads to true spiritual maturity is taught by the Spirit, verse 13 tells us. Now Paul here is, is not at all uh, promoting a, a secret Gnostic um, gospel or knowledge there's nothing god's hidden it but only from those who have refused his plan and purpose the only reason it's hidden is because through every age through every time there's always been people that have trusted in their own wisdom rather than trusting god to them it's hidden they don't know what's coming they can't even figure out what's happening let alone what's coming But the Spirit of God is accessible. He's revealed to us through the Spirit. This wisdom of God is accessible. God has condescended to show us. He's decreed that it's hidden from some, yes, but he's prepared something for us. And he's revealed it through his Spirit, so it's, it is accessible. It's understandable be interpreted to us through the Spirit. Where 
We're receiving the thoughts of God from the Spirit. Now, how that works, we don't know, but we have this wonderful access to God. We have this access. It can be learnt. Paul makes another distinction. That those who are spiritual, verse 13, he's talking about those who are spiritual in the same context about the mature from verse 6. So those who are spiritually mature. And then he's, in verse 14 he goes, there's, there's a natural person. The natural person doesn't understand these things. They, haven't, they don't have the spirit. He's, he's defining between those who have faith and those who, who don't. He's, he's not making distinctions amongst the believers here. That's, that's something he's already trying to establish. There shouldn't be any distinctions amongst believers. They all have the Spirit. All of them. There's no, there's no extra little thing that they've passed a test and they get a bit of extra dose. They've all got the same Spirit. The distinction he's going to make in chapter 3 is it starts, because I couldn't address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants. You're not mature. The problem wasn't whether they had the spirit or not. The problem was their maturity with how they handled the things that God was trying to teach them through his spirit. So what Paul shared with the Corinthians is what we are to share with one another. We, we focus on the right thing. Who's the author of all this? How can we understand God except through God? We, we don't come to others with our plans and our agendas. No, we impart to the mature the wisdom of God, which is that Christ has been crucified. Now this, this means we, we set aside how we think things should work. We set aside how the th we should think it looks, what would be fashionable, what would be appealing, what would be attractive. It's good to think through those things somewhere and removing barriers, what would help people come to a place where they can hear of the gospel, know the gospel. We think through those things in our approach, but we don't make that it. <laughs> That's not, the means isn't the end, I suppose. A big diagnostic question on that is that don't ask God to do what you think he should do. Ask him what he's doing. Where is God at work? What's he revealing where the needs are in the people around you? We often look at people and see them as problems that we can solve or people that we can use to our ends. Or that if we do this, this and this, then this will happen. That might be very good and we can pray. But our best prayer is, God, what's your will? What are you actually doing? What are you actually doing here? God's prepared something for you as well. God's prepared something for you. Live in that. And if God has prepared something for you, the right response, God has prepared it for those who love him. So sit in the love of God, knowing he's prepared something extraordinary for you. Something that the best and brightest people in the world, self-appointed, 
have missed. He's prepared it for you. So sit in the love of God. Lastly, thinking through his last couple of verses, that becoming spiritually mature means thinking like Christ. We have the mind of Christ. There's this natural person who doesn't accept anything God reveals through his spirit because he has no spiritual discernment. And it's contrasted against a spiritual person who does have discernment and they have because they have the full and rich resources of God's spirit within them. They have the wisdom of God to live out in their lives. They look the spiritually mature person looks to the world and the wisdom and the wealth in it. And they judge those things should not be a priority for me. They shouldn't capture my affection. I might need to give them my attention every now and again, but they shouldn't capture my affection. They discern what is the priority. And they discern not based on their own exemplary capabilities or giftings. They discern these things because they've been taught by the Spirit. There's an interesting phrase there in verse 15. The spiritual person judges or discerns all things, but he himself is to be judged by no one. You're spiritually mature in Christ because you have the Spirit of Christ within you. That's the grounding of your maturity. It's the grounding of your spiritual life, is that you have placed your faith and trust in Christ alone and that the Spirit lives within you. To the extent that you let the Spirit rule your heart and mind, that's the extent to which you'll be judged by others. Paul's about to transition into judging and discerning in the Corinthian church. And his first step of judgment is that you're immature, you're infants. He's going to judge. He's going to discern that they're not getting something right. And what they're not getting right is they're not relying on the Spirit as they should. They're not relying on the wisdom of God as they should. They're not prioritising Christ. So when you say, no one can judge me, be careful with that. Be very careful with that. Because the Spirit will reveal you as you really are. If you're not showing the fruit of the Spirit, that will be evidence in the self that you're not in that mature end of that fruit spectrum. We have to be careful with our self-evaluations. We place ourselves under Christ. We place ourselves under God's wisdom. We place ourselves in step with the Spirit. So what marks does a spiritually mature person have? Be careful of saying or listing or accepting this notion of I can be... I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. I don't do stuff. And that can be a, a dangerous path to go down. The Spirit will move you to do works in line with your identity. Be careful with saying I'm not religious. There's, there's an aspect to that that can be dangerous. And we also have to be wary of proclaiming to know God's thoughts and God's word but we don't have what 
Paul finishes with here, the mind of Christ. Who has understood the mind of the Lord is so to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Those who proclaim to know the thoughts of God but do not have the mind of Christ are usually found looking into a mirror. And I say that in the sense of the centre of everything in your life is the way you think, the way uh, you feel. You're going to end up with an image of God that looks very, very familiar. And you'll be motivated by your interactions with, with everyone around you as to how, how does my perception of God, how does what I think about God, how should people be react? How should people be think, thinking I'm really wise? How should people be acting around me? But no, the mind of Christ is very different. The mind of Christ, Paul, is a big theme for Paul, both here and also in Philippians. Those with the mind of Christ understand that Christ crucified is all that matters. And the life of the believer then is one of humility, where there's no superficial discerning, there's no superficial judgment based on preferences or what I expect of someone else. But we discern God's wisdom. Where, what is God actually doing? What has he done in Christ and what is he doing right now? The spiritually mature person who has the mind of Christ has the fruit of the Spirit on display in their lives. Those who think like Christ will have the Spirit and will have the fruit of the Spirit. So we think then as a summary of our passage this morning. And Paul here is teaching us that spiritually mature people proclaim the work of and person of Christ in their words and in their lives. They possess the Spirit because God has given it to them and they're taught by the Spirit because what the Spirit's role is to reveal where we need Christ. And they love the God who has revealed all this to them. Let's pray. Father, there's much in this passage that we have not covered in the detail, even I would want to. This is where we're dependent on your spirit to teach us, to help us to understand. We ask that as those here in your church that are determined to follow after you and follow your son, we would be found faithful to putting him first, having him as our priority. We'd be found in your love, resting in your love, and our faith resting in your wisdom rather than anything this world offers. Give us a fuller understanding of who you are. Give us a right discernment, a right judgment, so that we can be found mature in Christ uh, before you. We ask all these things by your grace. Amen.